You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Well, welcome everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. We've got a really quite a full house, which is fantastic. And we also have, I know, um, we had over 200 sign-ups for uh, dialing in online. So it's clearly a very um, popular and important topic for everyone. Um, so uh, today's discussion is about changing gender norms for women's economic empowerment. Um, so gender norms we widely recognize as a barrier to women's economic empowerment, affecting their access to decent work and their experiences within the workplace. The norms help explain why women's participation in the labor force has stagnated in some contexts and why women are frequently concentrated in relatively less lucrative sectors and occupations than men. And gender norms can also underpin harmful practices such as sexual harassment in the workplace. Around the world, some norms are shifting. Economic change and programs uh, that support women in the workplace are both playing a role. And in some contexts, women are taking up occupations formerly seen as men's work, and in others, responsibilities for care and domestic work are starting to shift. But how far do examples like this represent sustainable change? Um, the 2015 Beijing Platform for Action was a 20, in 2015 they did a 20-year review looking across all different sectors. And when I revisited that and looked carefully at it, it seemed to me that some areas were, were moving and we had made progress, but there were a couple of areas that really seemed to be stagnating. One was control over women's sexuality, and the other was women's economic empowerment. And in thinking about why this was, um, it seems to me that it's okay for, um, to make positive change in women's lives if you're not directly challenging power relations. Um, as soon as the, more, the closer you get to, to the center of power, the more difficult it becomes. And economic empowerment is a very challenging area, giving, because it requires men in particular to give up some of, uh, some of the power and some of the dominance. Um, and so we see, you know, sort of control over ownership over property, for example. Um, it requires sharing. And I think that's one of the reasons why norms in economic empowerment are really difficult to shift. There are other fa factors, um, but th I think that's one of, the one of the reasons. And the 20-year review revealed shockingly show slow tr change. Over 20 years, the previous 20 years to, in fact, this was 2012, the gender gap in the labor market participation narrowed by just two percentage points. And in Southern and East Asia, the gap actually grew wider over this time period. It would take 75 years at that pace to actually achieve inequality. So this is a really, really slow area of change, which is why we've been looking at the, the effect of gender norms in this area in terms of, of, of keeping change slow. Um, so we drew on the results of the new research by the Growth and Economic Opportunities for Women program, GROW, um, this was uh, uh, funded by IDRC, and GROW spanned 50 countries exploring, and the work we did explored how changing gender norms can lead to women's economic empowerment, drawing on that research program. 
So for the panel today, we're delighted to be joined by Rachel Marcus, who's a senior research fellow in the Gender Equality and Social Inclusion team here at ODI, um, by Chidi King on my left here, the director of the Equality Department of the International Trade Union Confederation. Aran Dahan, sitting in the front row here, who will shortly be giving some remarks, is the director of IDRC's Inclusive Economies Program at the International Development Research Centre. Um, and commissioned this work from us. On video link, we have uh, Marilyn Mungereza, who's the country manager at TechnoServe Inc. in Uganda, and Emmanuela Pozan, who's the senior, senior gender equality and non-discrimination specialist at the ILO. Um, so, and I also would like, apart from welcoming, welcoming all of you here, to welcome our online audience. Um, join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag uh, Shell's equal, she, she, is. Uh, she is equal, um, and make sure to tag us at ODI Dev. Um, I think that's on the screen, actually. Yeah, it is. Um, so first of all, I'll introduce Aran. Um, ODI is obviously delighted to be working with IDRC on this topic. Um, Aran is the director of IDRC's Inclusive Economies Program. He leads a multidisciplinary team to strengthen policy research capacity in developing countries on issues of economic policy, governance, and health systems. Um, previously, he's led programming on poverty reduction, employment, and growth. And prior to IDRC, he was social development advisor at uh, DFID for 10 years, uh, working especially in China and India. So can I invite you to come and give some initial comments on this work. Thank you so much, Caroline. It's, it's great to, uh, to, to be here. I, I had prepared remarks. Of course, I lost my notes. Plus, I walk in and I see so many old friends that I'd like, I've got to say something very different anyway. So, uh, but, but stop me if I take too long. So, so it's a pleasure to be here. I, I've known uh, Caroline and Rachel for a long time in that, that time that I worked at DFID in, in the UK and many people in, in the room here. So it's a great pleasure that we, we could collaborate on uh, on this. Uh, so IDRC is uh, is a Canadian, uh, uh, part of the Canadian International Development uh, uh, Development Programme, the great success that IDRC work has. We, we actually predicted the, the last Canadian general election out of which came a feminist uh, feminist uh, prime, prime minister. So the impact of our research. This, of course, was a correlation not causality that's what the footnote footnote says but to, to be serious of course it's, it's a great you know working in Canada now on on the topic of gender equality of course is, is a great privilege and and we want to make sure that 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 what comes out of that in the international community that we, that we collaborate uh, with with major players in in the uh, in the UK and and elsewhere and again that's why it's such a, a great pleasure and, and honor to to be here to 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 be part of this conversation on this research findings the the program uh, that we led within uh, so IDRC is a, is a uh, part of the Canadian Development Program that supports good research for development, but primarily researchers in the global south to build up capacity uh, to to do good uh, good research. And as part of our programming, we build up this this program, which was called Grow on Women's Economic Empowerment. Important to say it was IDRC that implemented it, but it was co-funded by, uh, by by the UK the UK's Department for International Development. It was ma managed by by Benedetto, who's sitting uh, here, and also the the Hewlett Foundation. And 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 working in that partnership was was very important for uh, 
for, for IDRC. So we, we managed to fund some 14 research projects, as, as Caroline said, that, that ended up working in some, uh, some 50 countries. And, and I'm not going to talk to you about the, the results that, that came, uh, came out of that, except to say one or, one or two things. One, uh, we, uh, that, that, that research, uh, we had a, a great component or a cluster within that that focus on, on, the, on the care economy where we uh, where the research showed and it was across five countries where the research shows that women's time burden remains a very important issue as we as we all know it, but it also that's incredibly important in some of the women's economic empowerment programs that we support uh, through those programs women's time burden continues to increase and that has a detrimental impact on on, on well-being of women and their families and and this is as important and we also showed that it is possible to invest in, uh, in publicly funded childcare. There's a demand for and a possibility to invest in publicly funded childcare in low-income contexts in a way that is not only good for women but also for the children and also has an economic, uh, economic benefit. The other area that we've that we've that we focused on, and that was less clear in terms of, of results, but 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 something that that Caroline referred to is issues of of, of, of labor market, where where the research showed, uh, as we all know, the, the specific barriers that women face, particularly in contexts where there are few good jobs available. The women's labor force participation is not increasing. That segmentation in labor markets is is, is getting stronger. Basically, that the SDGs around women's labor force participation patients are not being met at the current context. We, we don't have equally good evidence on, on what to do about this, and this is an area that we're looking to explore further. So these are just the two things, and, and uh, the, that large research program, it's on, on our website, and please have a look at that. I have some material with me. Now, why this meeting? At the end of the program, and we had this large diversity of research projects by now, Rachel, how many papers did you review? Some, some 50, 60 papers that were there at the end of, of four years of, of research. And we, we said we need to synthesize that for the international, for the global community, as well as those, those specific pieces of research. And one thing that we felt, and, and what Rachel and Caroline looked at, is like, it's like in all the, I'm going to exaggerate slightly, I'm going to steal your thunder, in all the, all the research projects, it was on women's economic empowerment. All the research project came out with, with, the, with the conclusion that social norms are really, really important. None of the research project went much further than, I think, than saying that norms were, 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 were so important. So there's a crucial part of the research agenda that we really, at that point, we felt we had this feeling, it's like, is there enough on social norms? And, and that's why it was so great to work with Caroline and Rachel on this, is really to, to out of this, this fairly large research portfolio, what do we know about social norms and what do we need to, 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 do, uh, to do further? So uh, with, I, I won't say anything more. I'm, I'm really, I, we've read many drafts of it, but I'm really uh, interested to hear how Rachel is presenting that and, and, and how, uh, what the reactions are of the panel. And again, thank you so much for entertaining us here and collaborating on this. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to move straight into the uh, presentations and discussions. I'll just introduce each speaker as they come up. So our first speaker is uh, Emanuela, who is online. Um, she's Senior Gender Equality and Non-Discrimination Specialist at the ILO, uh, covering a portfolio of initiatives um, in the area of access to women, care economy, pay equality, violence and harassment in the world of work. 
Um, she's got many years' experience working in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia on women and workers' rights, non-discrimination, disability, and labor migration. Um, she's also worked with the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, NGOs, UNFPA, and now the ILO. So, Emmanuel, I'm going to invite you to give a talk. Um, I think you have some slides which will be appearing on the screen. Great. Can okay, you hear me? Yes. Good. So, good afternoon to all of you and uh, warm greetings from Geneva. Um, it's a real pleasure to be joining this forum. I would have loved to be in London with you in person and to, to meet you all, but unfortunately I could not make it this time. And I do apologize because I will have to leave uh, in one hour time due to care responsibilities. Uh, I would like to thank the organizers also for the opportunity provided to the International Labour Organization to share a little bit of uh, an overview um, of the work that we have been doing in the area of gender equality in the world of work and also the diagnosis of the current uh, status, situation and the future of uh, uh, the agenda of uh, uh, the situation of women in the world of work. Uh, some of, of what I'm saying uh, has already been touched upon uh, by, uh, by the, in the introduction, but um, perhaps I can, uh, uh, I can unpack a little bit more. As, you, as many of you might know, the International Labour Organization is about to celebrate uh, 100 years of life. Um, and we are expecting a big birthday party next year to celebrate the century. Uh, but um, um, this time of celebration um, is actually has given an opportunity to really do a deep reflection on the work done and the remaining challenges. And the key question that we have been posing ourselves is to what extent has the world of work been able to fulfill the potentials and aspirations of women and girls? And have gender norms changed vis-a-vis -vis the world of work? And certainly, a lot of progress has occurred. We cannot deny this over this century, but a lot needs to be uh, done, remain to be done. And the current trends, has, uh, has, uh, has just been said, um, pose some important considerations that need to be made. So, as you see in the first uh, slide, uh, according to the latest trends, the gap between women and men in the labor force participation is widening, and it has been widened for quite some time, actually, instead of closing as we are aspiring in the 2030 agenda. As you can see at the moment, it is at 26.5%. We have more than half of the women population globally that is not in the labor force compared to one quarter of men. And overall, it is estimated that being a woman in this world, in this moment, is associated with 30% less chances of being in the labor force. This is certainly not a promising figure for any woman or any young woman that wants to enter the labor force. Uh, yet, if we look at uh, the aspirations and attitudes and perceptions of women and also of men vis-a-vis -vis the preference of women to work, it's clear that the research says, and uh, we had a Gallup report a couple of years ago that confirmed that most women prefer to be working and the majority of men agree with this preference. 
70% of women and 66% of men would prefer women to be in paid jobs. And even when women in households where it is not acceptable for women to work outside the home, those women, one in three, would like to be in a paid job. So women want to work, men agree that women work, but only less than half of the female population is in the labor force. And when we unpack this, um, second slide please, when we unpack this, we all know the many, many different reasons why uh, women's uh, possibilities and are, are limited in uh, entering the labor force from safe lack of safe transportation, unequal pay, lack of good paying jobs, unfair treatment, etc. And all these factors vary according to the level of development of a country or, or the, uh, the age group. But there is a common denominator that is across, uh, uh, across the world and it's the main challenge is for both women and also for men is balancing work and life responsibilities and family responsibilities. The International Labour Organization has a convention 156 that is very clear in its message. It's about workers with family responsibilities and it calls for states to put in place those measures necessary to support work and family balance. It's about childcare, but it's also about infrastructures. It's about services, social services, social protection, etc. It's not by chance, by coincidence, that this convention is not widely ratified because this convention poses really, you know, the key issue of unpaid care work. It poses the need for a major transformation. When we look at care responsibility, we are talking of, uh, as, uh, as uh, our presenter said before, uh, we are talking of shaking the power relations. The ILO has recently uh, produced the care, uh, a care report. Um, it's a very thick uh, book, actually, but it has some very key messages. So if we look, next slide, please, at unpaid care work, what is the magnitude globally of unpaid care work? So in 2018, 16.4 billion hours are spent in unpaid care work every day. This means that 2 billion people are working eight hours per day for free. And we all know, as it was also said, that it is mainly women to perform unpaid care work. 67.2% of the total amount of unpaid care work globally is done by women. This is an area, unpaid care work, where there hasn't been enough progress. Actually, progress has been very slow. And if we look at the trends, it will take 210 years to close this unpaid care work gap. So in reality, I think only our grand-grandsons and grand-granddaughters will live in a world where uh, both uh, men and women have an equal share of unpaid care work. And this will be probably in 2,228 if we put in place a real transformative agenda. In fact, we all talk about uh, the fourth uh, industrial revolution, but what is needed is really a revolution uh, that puts at the heart of, uh, um, of change um, 
the, 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 the change in, in this power relations, only when women and men will have an equal share of unpaid care work, it will be possible for women to be fully present in the labor force. Um, I'll leave it here um, because I know that time is very short and, uh, and I'll be available for questions. Great, thank you very much. Um, we, if people have uh, clarification questions, they can ask them now, but I'm planning to take all four presentations and then have a discussion where you can ask more specific questions. So, only clarification at the moment. Um, in which case, I'm going to move on to um, Rachel Marcus, who's giving uh, the next talk and um, reviewed all of these uh, research studies that were undertaken for their content on, on norms. Rachel's a senior research fellow here at ODI in the Gender Equality and Social Inclusion team. She's had more than 20 years' experience um, as a researcher with a, a special expertise in rigorous evidence reviews and a strong focus on gender, childhood, youth, adolescence and inclusion. Um, and she's co-leading uh, many of our work streams around evidence synthesis. So Rachel, I'll pass on to you. Thank you, Caroline. So after the overview that Emanuela's given, I'm now going to go into quite a deep dive into what the GROW um, studies revealed about gender norms and their impact on women's economic opportunities, um, particularly in the areas of access to work and uh, workplace experiences. The slide summarises the um, different areas where we found that norms are important and so the pathways that they affected women's economic opportunities. I'm not going to attempt to talk to all of them, but I'll just pull out a few of the um, key issues that we found in these studies. Um, I mean, social norms are important because they affect, they're fundamental to achieving gender equality in, in economic opportunities. They structure access to resources, they affect opportunities to develop skills, they affect time use and divisions of labour, as, as Emanuela um, made very clear with the, the graphics that she's shown, and they um, affect people's abilities to act on the opportunities that may or may not be there for them. Um, one of the key things we found, which was a surprise, um, but perhaps not given the context of the lack of progress in women's economic participation, is that all the norms were constraining. We might have expected to find a little more of an imbalance, that maybe some norms were facilitatory in some way, um, that enabled women to perhaps undertake certain areas of work, but pretty much everything was constraining. In some cases, women were directly banned from doing particular kinds of work um, as a group for example they weren't there was just a total prohibition on them being involved in underground mining uh, that wasn't like a formal prohibition by the mining companies but it was an agreement that it, it was just wrong for women to be underground that was not suitable work for them and they shouldn't be there um, or as one um women engaging in farming and small business in, in Uganda said, my husband dictates the kind of work I can engage in. He even restricts me on the number of hours I can work. And sometimes the restrictions were so internalised that women couldn't imagine doing them. The Sri Lanka study, which was um, looking at the economic opportunities of women in the northern um, post-conflict environment, um, who were most of whom were widows, um, and 
at, at the same time sort of couldn't imagine doing work like driving a three-wheeler to enable them to get to more markets to be able to sell more products because that was seen as totally unacceptable for women to do. Um, but more common than those outright bans, there were was gossip and undermining and you know challenging women's reputation and their morality and their housekeeping skills and you know labeling them as not a real woman so again a woman in Uganda said well I, I go and do tin mining I can't provide that care to my own children I think that's where I've deviated from one of the key makers of a real woman a real woman digs and grows food crops and feeds a family but for me I buy food using tin money and that's abnormal for a real traditional woman and, you know, for some of the women in the study, um, in, in the different studies, th there was clearly an impact on their psychological well-being, but not, not for everybody. In some cases, they also felt, um, as well as the hostility, a sense of empowerment where they were blazing a trail and, um, and gaining a certain degree of respect as, as women who were, despite all the odds, working in, in things like mining and um, running successful pit shafts. Um, it was clear that for, for many of the women, the restrictions stopped them from being able to access as good education as ML peers, but also, and, and I think that's very well known, but also it really undermined their access to more informal skill building opportunities, um, partly because of care responsibilities, partly because of mobility restrictions that meant they were just out less in their surroundings, able to engage less with other people and able to, um, not able to take up opportunities that were being offered um, to men. And obviously, in many of the the study contexts, there weren't a load of opportunities being offered to anyone. They were, they were poor contexts where nobody had many skill-building opportunities, but where they did arise, women were less able to take them up. And as a result of this, they were concentrated in less lucrative areas of work. So, for example, back to, back to the mining examples, they were more providing, um, they were doing things like washing and sorting, which was paid less than the actual taking ore out of the ground, or they were providing food services, sometimes sexual services, that were less well paid than sort of the more heavy mining type work. Or um, in one of the studies from Bangladesh, um, young women were who were had perhaps been doing things like tailoring and carried on tailoring businesses after marriage, but they were prevented from going to market to get cloth to see what the new fashions and styles were. So all of that was being relayed through their husbands. And so they were less able to build effective businesses um, than if they had been able to go. I mean, they found creative ways around it, like communicating with customers through mobile phones, but it was not the same as being actually able to go see what the new fashions were to be able to really make, meet that niche in the, mar in the market. We, we found some evidence of intergenerational change. Um, for example, particularly in terms of care responsibilities, um, and changing attitudes. In a couple of quotes from young women in Tanzania. Um, the days when our mothers were to ask for money from our fathers, even for simple things like underwear are gone. We need our own money and this means that we should work. Or for me who's gone to school, why did I go there? Was it to stay home and do what? Then why did I go? No, you, do you need to go to school to remain at home? Why don't you stay there from the word go? Um, and they were really quite challenging of the idea that they should stay at home. Um, and, and um, not use their education. But there was a big disconnect with their father's generation who were much more critical of young women who went out to work. And uh, one young woman said, well, I think there's no big problem with working mothers, but my father, people, older people like my father wouldn't like to hear that. They think women must be goalkeepers, but I think they mean, mean sort of keeping um, care, of, care of the home and sh therefore shouldn't work. <coughs> 
so women's attitudes or at least young women's attitudes were changing and also among younger couples there was some evidence of norms starting to shift as well so when for example women were working out in their in businesses or um largely and had to be at market till late or perhaps go on a training course there was some recognition from their husbands particularly in tanzania and rwanda that um, men needed to take on other tasks. And you know, one of the men said, well, according to the culture, women have to handle the home activities. That's according to the culture. But for me, I feel good when everyone gets involved in doing the care work at home. It indicates that everyone's got something to contribute to the family. But when it came to talking about this in a group with um, other men, um, this man and some of the others who had admitted to doing care work um, in private to interviewers didn't want to admit it in public. And um, similarly, a, a Nepali woman mentioned that um, that when when she um, asked her husband for help, her mother-in-law would criticise. When her husband offered to help, the mother-in-law would criticise, and other people in the village would ridicule them. And so, they although they wanted a more egalitarian gender division of labour, the social pressure not to do so was so strong. And we so we really saw that it was social norms that were stopping people perhaps changing to live in a way that they wanted to live and in a way that would be more economically empowering for everyone. Um, we also found um, fear and backlash related to change. Um, a couple of quotes from Uganda. One was, economically empowered women are big-headed. They often divorce. And men are hesitant to have joint investments with their wives. Once a woman has got money, she becomes uncontrollable and um, disobedient. So there was a real fear in some contexts that um, women's economic empowerment could just go too far, that it was a, ch a change too much, and that change needed to be much, much more gradual or, and or controlled by men so that families were getting the benefit of the income without the, the empowerment alongside. And also one of the studies from Bangladesh also showed that people on the one hand appreciated the income from things like garment work, but often were very reluctant to admit that their daughters or daughter-in-laws were doing it because the women involved were seen as too uncontrollable and that if they went to the city and worked in factories, they would learn to, to be too challenging and they wouldn't be docile enough to then be able to slot back into the role of a traditional wife. Um, what the, the studies didn't focus on what really leads to change in norms. They were as I mentioned, primarily looking at norms as constraints. But some of the issues that did come up through the more quantitative and overview parts of the programme pointed to the potential of legal reforms, but the necessity that additional work would go along alongside to stop them being subverted, which um, <coughs> came up particularly to do with women's land rights. Um, that new economic opportunities can help shift norms up to a point, but the way that women are able to take them up is really profoundly affected by prevailing norms. So in Pakistan, for example, um, the researchers were initially quite surprised to find that there was a strong interest and willingness for women to uptake, uh, to take up training opportunities, but they had to be within the bounds of the village. And over that distance, then it became completely impossible. And, and likewise, you know, norms about women doing childcare, when there was actually good quality and affordable childcare on offer, um, women were happy to take it up in Kenya and India and to make use of that. But it did have to be seen as offering them something worth doing in order to make the, the sacrifice of, of leaving their children with someone that they, they didn't necessarily know who wasn't family or know to the same extent. 
So those are just a few snapshots really from, from the deep dive we undertook looking at those studies. And the next two speakers are going to talk, talk much more on what can be done to change um, challenging norms from different perspectives. So I'll, I'll let Caroline introduce them. Great. Thank you very much, Rachel. Um, it's very, um, those vignettes and snapshots take you to the heart of the norms and attitudes, um, which, sorry, the norms which are the behaviours and attitudes that people exhibit and, and the attitudes they hold which stop actually um, people changing. So that's very useful. I just remind you, do prepare your questions um, for the, the, the discussion at the end online. Um, do be thinking about any questions you have, and you can send them in, and I will ask them on your behalf. Um, great. So now we move uh, to Chidi. Uh, so Chidi um, King is the director of the Equality Department of the International Trade Union Conference, Confederation, sorry. It represents 207 million workers in 163 countries and territories. Um, prior to this work, uh, Chidi worked as Equality and Rights Office Officer at the Global Union Federation Public Services International and as Employment Rights Officer at the United Kingdom's Trade Union Congress. She has a background as a lawyer and a trade union activist with a particular passion for equality, human rights and civil liberties <coughs> issues. So I will hand over to you comments. Thank you very much. I'm wondering where you found that bio. <laughs> <laughs> you corrected it. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. It was very generous. Um, maybe I should explain a little bit about what the International Trade Union Confederation is before I um, launch into um, my presentation. So the ITC, um, as was briefly explained, is an organization of trade unions. We bring together trade unions um, globally around the world here in the United Kingdom. The Trade Union Congress is one of our affiliates. In Canada, it would be the Canadian Labour Congress, um, for example. In Kenya, we have um, three affiliates. In Tanzania, you get the picture globally. And these affiliates all together bring together around um, just over 200 million, 200 million workers in an organized um, labour force. And of those 200 million workers, we estimate that probably around 42% um, are women. Our task really is about, it's all about decent work. It's about ensuring that workers who go out to work can earn a decent living, can earn enough to feed their families, can earn enough to put clothes on their backs, can earn enough to actually ensure that their children can have access to a decent education and therefore to decent jobs um, in the future. We are, and I won't hide or try to run away from it, trade unions are very often accused of being very much part of the problem when it comes to issues around social norms and gendered roles, and that we're told very often that we replicate patriarchal norms that exist in society. And to me, that is not a surprise. I mean, we are not somehow divorced from the societies in which we exist. So where you have gendered roles that are very entrenched, when you have social norms that are very <coughs> entrenched, it's not that surprising that you will find them replicated in various institutions and organizations, including trade unions. That said, what I particularly am passionate about in trade unions is that women in trade unions are not passive agents. So we organize ourselves, we push for change within our own organizations, and we achieve change within our own organizations. So within the ITC family, this global family, for instance, at the moment we have, as I said, 42% of our membership, which is female, roughly, 
And of that percentage, um, only, I say only with some caution, 28% are in top leadership um, positions. But if you were to compare that with other gender-mixed institutions or organizations, I think that would compare um, quite favorably. And that number is increasing because women are actively organizing, um, not just for leadership positions within the trade union movement, but also for transformation um, of the trade union movement. Which brings me to an issue that everybody, I think, has touched on, and this issue of gendered roles linked to care, because I think the issue of reproductive roles really goes to the crux of pretty much everything um, that we're talking about, to those power relations, to the power dynamics, to the opportunities that women have, and girls in relation to education that women um, have in terms of entering the workforce and gaining decent um, jobs in the workforce, but also the type of work women tend to perform once they enter the labor market, which again tends to be mainly in caring sectors. So it's either in social care, in education, in health care, um, but also in jobs that are perceived to be seen, that are perceived to be very um, female or feminine, whether it's, you know, sewing in the garment and textile industries, whether it's, you know, um, horticulture, whether it's agriculture, these are jobs that are, seen, uh, that are perceived to be um, for women. So social norms really do impact very much the kind of work that women perform and at the back of those social norms is this whole issue of care. And I think wrapped all in all of that, and this is also what trade unions are about, you've got to see um, the power dynamics in terms of the global economy and the fact that we have um, global e a global economy, a very neoliberal global economy at the moment, that um, is predicated on having access to cheap labor. Um, to, in order to maximize profits for global companies through global supply chains, you have to have access to very cheap sources of labor. And this is across the board for both men and women. But when you look at who is faring the worst out of all of this, it is women who are right at the start, at the base of the supply chains, and very often women of color and migrant women who are providing um, that very cheap, very often precarious labor that doesn't have any social protection attached to it, that has very little opportunities for mobility um, within it. And very often that labor is controlled through violence and harassment, which is another issue um, that perhaps we will be able to explore a little bit um, during the conversation that we'll have. So from the IT's perspective, in, um, other than doing the work internally in terms of bringing um, women's leadership to the fore within our organizations, transforming those organizations, we've also had a very strong focus on the issue of the care economy. And over the past um, four years, I would say, we've produced two reports around what investment in the care economy um, would provide, both in terms of jobs. So for example, we, um, our initial research showed that if you um, invested 2% of global GDP, of domestic GDP rather, in the care economy in the US, you would generate 25 million decent jobs. So not just any type of jobs, but really decent jobs. And that this would also have an uh, impact on other areas of the economy, but would also have an impact on liberating women to perform decent jobs, liberating them from doing um, the care work that generally tends to fall on our backs when governments fail to invest in care services, when, as has been the case here, we have had you know, austerity measures that cut back on those services that really tend to constrain women's um, access to opportunities. 
So for us, the idea of doing that research, and I think the, the research that the ILO has just produced takes that even further, but the idea of producing that research was to show investment in the care economy as just that, that this is not a cost, as it's often perceived. It's investing both in the economy, but investing um, equally importantly in people, and investing, um, again, equally importantly in gender equality, because um, this is a big area that affects um, women's access to all sorts of different things, including political life and cultural life and social life. So um, I'm wondering where I, how I wrap that up all um, very quickly, because I think I'm running short of time. Um, in addition to the work that we're doing um, around um, the care economy, and I have to say that this issue about women's reproductive roles and where women belong in society um, you've got to put it also in the context of, uh, um, of what is happening politically at the moment. It's not for nothing that we're seeing the rise of these strong men across the world. And I put strong men in quotes. So in Brazil, we've just elected this crazy, misogynistic, racist, homophobic leader. I don't know who's listening on this. <laughs> I wouldn't mince my words there. You know, um, um, Bolsonaro, we've had, well, we've been living with Trump for more than a year now. Um, we have Orban in Hungary. Um, it, the list kind of goes on, and this is part of the backlash and pushback against the idea of where um, women, and I use women in, our, in all our glory in the sense that we are not, of course, just one monolithic type of being, that women have all kinds of identities, characteristics that intersect. Um, you know, whether it's race, whether it's class, whether it's, you know, migration status, etc. So in all of that, this pushback against um, women asserting their rights is playing out at that very high political um, level as well. But that brings us all back to the economy and the need, again, to have this docile, malleable, compliant, cheap labor force that is accessible and that is typified, I have to say again, um, in women. We, for the past um, five, six, seven years, and I'll wrap this up here, have been working um, within the International Labour Organization, talking about gendered norms, to elaborate um, a convention, Emanuela mentioned conventions um, earlier on, which are international labour laws, international labour standards. And we saw the need for one, that is the workers of the world, saw the need for an international labour standard on gender-based violence. It's taking us right up until 2015 for the institution of the ILO, that's the workers, the governments, and the employers, to agree to work towards a standard to address violence and harassment in the world of work. So we couldn't even get agreement on a standard to address the specificity of gender-based violence. The compromise was that we needed to address violence and harassment in the world of work generally. Well, both men and women do experience violence and harassment, so fair enough. And we have, or we're trying to work towards a standard now that will have a particular lens on gender-based violence, because otherwise it really will not deliver what it, it needs to be delivered. You would think in these days of hashtag MeToo, etc., this would be quite an easy task, that no government in the world was going to push back on this, that even the employers would say, yes, this is an issue we need to address. But as Emanuela could also tell you, this has been an incredibly difficult discussion. The first discussion was this year. We will try to conclude with a convention um, next year. Um, but all that to say that this shows the kind of times that we're living in. Progress has been made in terms of social norms, in terms of changing gendered roles. But when it comes back to it, when it right, comes back to these questions of power 
and who can exert and wield that power, you feel the pushback and you feel it extremely strongly. So I think I'll stop there. I'm sorry if I went a little bit over time. No, you're perfectly on time. Uh, very good. Thank you very much. I thought your sentence that the economy needs docile, malleable, cheap, accessible labor force cuts to the heart of structural issues that really prevent us from progressing. Thank you. So our final speaker, uh, Marilyn, who is on audio, uh, not on video. Um, so I, I'm going to move to um, Marilyn Mungaze, uh, Mungareza. Um, she's working as the country manager at TechnoServe in, uh, Inc. in Uganda, where she spent the past eight years supporting over 15,000 women, men, and youth to build their skills and increase their economic opportunities. Um, she was recognized as Employee of the Year in 2015 and was one of the four global recipients of the TechnoServe President's Award um, for the year 2016. She's also a lawyer uh, with a degree in corporate governance and financial regu regulation. So I'm going to pass on to you, um, Marilyn, to, to uh, give your, your talk. A, a great good evening you from Kampala. I'm very excited to be joining this panel for this discussion today. Uh, I apologize for the technology difficulty and it's an audio. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about TechnoServe um, as I dive into this interesting discussion. TechnoServe is a U.S. best non-profit organization currently celebrating 50 years in service to the developing world. We implement uh, programs in agriculture and entrepreneurship and are currently I've been leading work in youth with girls and women programming, so this is a topic quite close to my heart, so I'm very excited to be with you all. When we talk about work in the Uganda context, work for us really means agriculture. Agriculture because this is a sector that employs 70 plus percent of the population. The sector is informal, it's not commercialized as much as it should be, but it's based on the smallholder farmers. And while men own the land, in the sector, women provide 75% of farm labor and 90% or contribute 90% to farm labor primary processing operations, for example, threshing and winnowing and things like that. So women's participation in, that, in this particular sector is very high. The challenge lies with access to the proceeds of that labor. While women do the bulk of the on-farm production work, men take over when it's time to market that produce. Women often do not know the market prices of the produce and cannot ask their husbands what they sold for or where the money went. So they do not fully benefit from their labor. Uh, it's important to note here that uh, men expect their wives to provide labor as one of the benefits of being married. And so that's part of where that comes from. So men do not feel obligated to disclose their agricultural earnings as the land is theirs, and therefore the produce is theirs. Money is often diverted to non-productive activities, living in areas like health and nutrition, the family, which is the women's domain, is As you can imagine, domestic violence is the norm in this setting. We talk about issues of access to land. Traditionally, land is inherited, and rarely is it passed on to women. Usually, women access land, uh, you know, with their husband or father's blessings or permission. But only does this limit the scope of what they can grow or use that land for. I mean, the lack of um, security in the land holding means that you wouldn't invest in high in long-term high-value crops, for example, coffee. Rather, you'll invest in short-term activities, you know, things like growing vegetables, doing mushrooms, keeping small chicken, and things that are easily moved 
moved in, you know, in a short time. And this means that they also cannot use this land, you know, for a mortgage to secure loan. So access finance is also a challenge for women who have no title or ownership or control of land. We've also often observed through this dynamic that women in our youth programming funded by Mastercard Foundation, women have lost a lot of their businesses when their marriage is sour because of access to the productive resource when they have no land that, you know, and the marriage ends and they are there ends their enterprise. Um, and many times we've observed challenges where women are able to rise in spite of all this when they have been able to achieve some level of success we find that they, their marriages in turn also suffer. Or perhaps, depending on how you look at it, they're able to escape from perhaps abusive relationships. And so the success of women is not often viewed positively in some of these settings. Our interventions usually focus on improving production and productivity of smallholder farmers. And given that the dynamics are just shared, we cannot ignore the gender issues. We therefore adopted some gender-based practices for our programming. And these are really simple things. For example, if you're really interested in helping uh, to improve productivity, you have to target both of the genders. You have to target, target both partners for training, ensure that you deliberately invite this is the farmer who, when you invite a farmer, usually men, men will show up. So you have to make an effort and say, we would like you to show up with your partner, with your wife. And so you have to make that effort. Also encourage them to, to make sure that they attend the training together. Because what we've also seen is that if one party is attending training and growing, you know, sort of they're leaving their partner behind, that this is not a, a good recipe for success. We also recognize and work around the barriers to women's participation. For example, the timing of the training. Because women, of course, have talked about the unpaid care work. They have to take care of the household. They have to cook and clean and make sure everybody is tended to before they can do anything else. So if you want a woman to participate in a training, you can't have it first thing in the morning. She won't show up. You also have to consider that she never, she'll hardly work alone, especially a young woman. She'll have her, her children in tow. So your training venue, wherever you select that place to be, needs to be near her home, but it's a walkable distance. It must also be child-friendly. When you organize a training, you must consider that there's the children crying, the women have to get out to, to breastfeed and do things like that. So you must be very flexible as a facilitator to ensure that the women feel comfortable coming with their children, you encourage them to come with them, and you give them room to step out, feed, and things like that. When organizing training, you must also consider literacy. Many times, as we know, the statistics women are left behind in terms of education and therefore literacy. So if you want the women to access content, make sure that it's friendly and in, you know, make sure you provide make provision for translation into local languages to ensure that they too benefit from this content. We also offer interesting modules like We Can Fly, um, which is an interesting where we really envisage a bird and we try to tell people that you know, a bird needs two wings to fly properly. And we say in this household, you know, each wing represents each, each gender. So if you want this, this family of yours to thrive, you, both of you must be able to be strong and active for you to benefit. And as We Can Fly uh, sessions, we have, we conduct what we call safe spaces. And we give both the women and the men the opportunity to discuss issues and just the culture norms. For example, we show images of men carrying children or men cooking. Those often in the rural communities elicit, you know, very strong reactions when people say, you know, I can't be seen carrying a child. I can't be seen to be cooking. My mother will think I've been bewitched. You know, this kind of strong sentiment mean that men will always leave this task to the women and meaning that they spend the entire day from dusk till dawn you know, from, from the whole day, from morning to night, working on and giving this unpaid labor on the farm and in the household. 
And so we try to encourage the, the gentlemen to take on these tasks as shared work. This is just work like any other. It is not necessarily tied to a woman, you know, just because she's a woman, she has to be the one to take care of the children. We show them that if you, both parties in this place, are economically active, then the, the household benefits. And then the, the financial burden isn't on the man's back alone, because that's how they do it. Never mind that they're getting the syllabus from the wives, but they still obligated for providing money. But they do not realize that that money is only there because of the level of their wives. So we try to show them that aspect and the benefits that that could bring. We also encourage role models to, to share stories, couples that have been man, that are managing to work together and where the men have given these women more room to really other talent outside of the home and you know, sharing their stories and how they have benefited with increasing income and improved family welfare. We've had, you know, the same observations from various projects in coffee. You know, we run programs of coffee in Ethiopia, cocoa in Tanzania, cotton in Uganda. The observations are all the same. When you engage both partners in training, you improve communication because now they both have information and they have something to discuss. They are both at the same place, at the same level. They can compare notes. This improves communication, reduces inter-household conflict, and reduces domestic violence. This increased transparency encourages joint financial decision-making, and this increases women's control of agriculture, income, and assets. So now that women are able to benefit more from this from their labor, they are encouraged to take on the new practices that we're trying to train, and this in turn has you know, those, those returns for them. By providing women with the same access as men to productive opportunities, we have seen up to 30% increases in farm yields and income. By implementing these best practices, segments have seen positive impacts on agricultural production and women's empowerment across Africa, Latin America, and India. And we share, we believe that men who have seen the value of their women being able to go out of their homes and doing some activity are likely to allow their daughters the same opportunity to go and learn because they see the value in the improved skills and empowerment of a woman. So that we, we believe that that next generation will be able to access education and support their wives, to support their wives to access other opportunities outside the home. I thank you so much for the opportunity to share this with you. Great. Thank Thank you very much, um, Marilyn. That was really comprehensive across a very wide range of issues that you're working on. So clearly you have um, to deal with the whole picture. Um, I th your, your connection was reasonable but not perfect. So um, I, hopefully we can put up much of what you've said online as well for people to access. Um, so thank you all panellists for... Um, for your contributions. We're actually going to open up now for questions from the floor. I do realize that in my enthusiasm to listen to the panel, I failed to introduce myself. Um, so, um, um, my name is Caroline Harper. I'm head of the uh, Gender Equality and Social Inclusion uh, team here at ODI and a principal research fellow here as well with a strong passion for changing uh, discriminatory gender norms. So. Um, so please ask your questions, we'll take them in sets, and I already have some online, so you have some competition, so um, please do, uh, let's take some questions from the floor. Oh yes, and I should mention that questions for Emanuela should come first, because she sadly has to leave us in a very shortly, so if you do have specific questions for her, please ask them now. 
for all the presentations. It's really informing for me. Uh, I have a question for Mrs. Katia now. Uh, for the first table, um, um, for the labor force uh, participation, uh, did you take into consideration about the informal employment of women in developing countries? Because uh, mostly we witnessed that, like uh, the women work in uh, household chores as a cleaning lady or nanny, but without any social benefits. So, and also the second question is what do you mean? What do you mean by unfair treatment? Because there is an unequal payment, so I wonder what does it include, the unfair uh, treatment in one of the categories. Thank you. Could you just introduce yourself? Uh, I am uh, Gokce Baikal. I'm a freelance uh, international development consultant working on cash transfers. Okay, Thank you. I think there was a question behind you. Hi, I'm Kate Holstead from Age International. Um, so um, I think it was Chidi recognised that um, women are not just one monolithic group, which is a really important point. Um, so my question is, how do we make sure when we're challenging, damaging gender norms that we're also looking at those intersecting social norms, um, including those related to age um, and others? Thank you. Great. Um, are there any other questions from the floor here? Again, um, particularly for Emanuela. But if not, go ahead. Yeah. Um, Sally Baden from Social Development Direct. Thank you for those um, presentations, really thought-provoking. It's a sort of huge um, area. I guess um, my question is really um, about um, how, how the panel, and I guess Rachel maybe, but also Chidi or, or anyone else, see the, the, the relationship between the changing nature of work itself and changing gender norms. Um, I mean, I guess I'm going to leave it as open as that because there's lots one could say about it, but I'd just like to hear some reflections on that. Okay, great. Um, I'm going to take a, a question online um, uh, about disability from Sylvia Cordia. Um, in the research, have you come across examples of how women with disabilities can or cannot access economic empowerment? How would you analyse what is the share of gender v disability norms in influencing these situations? Are disability-related stereotypes having a less or more important role than gender social norms as barriers to economic empowerment? So on, on intersectional issues there. Um, got a lot of online questions, so I'll ask as many as I can, but let's stick with those four for the first um, round of responses. I'll go first to Emanuela if you want to comment on any of those questions. Yeah, um, perhaps, I don't think it was uh, addressed to me, but the point made on informal economy certainly... Um, an extremely important point uh, we when we talk about labor force participation uh, and the gap uh, um, we're not necessarily looking at informal economy however one of the reasons why the the gap uh, in labor force participation is widening is because informal economy is growing and uh, and um, and a lot of women work in the informal economy so there's a link there um, um, because the audio was not very clear, I'm not so sure I understood the question about unequal payment, 
but if it was referred to, to the work of the ILO, uh, here we mean um, uh, the, the gender wage gap and the fact that the gender wage gap is currently at 20%, and it's something that we are really much working on because it's one of, uh, one of the, it's very much linked to gender norms, and uh, it's one of the reasons uh, uh, why women are, are also not in the labor force, because as one of the presenters said, if, if there's no, or oh, maybe Shidi said, if, if there's no advantage in, uh, in joining the labor force in terms of uh, good wages, uh, then women would stay home. And there was also a question related to the changing world of work. Uh, the changing world of work is, yes, it's changing and it's changing rapidly, but uh, we are not seeing uh, the same uh, changes happening to... Um, gender norms, or at least uh, they're certainly taking time. And going back to the informal economy, if we wanted to be a little bit provocative, um, the fact that um, uh, 2 billion people, um, the fact that if we were, if we were calculating the 16.4 billion hours spent in unpaid care work every day, and and uh, and uh, look at this unpaid care work as informal work that women mainly women do. Um, and if we were to calculate this at the minimum wage rate, um, we would be talking of 11 trillion US dollars that you know would be generated in the informal economy if unpaid care work was actually really recognized, accounted for, and therefore uh, uh, valued. I'll stop it here, and I do apologize, but I really have to go. Um, I thank you, the organizers, and I also thank for the questions, and, and I really wish a, a fruitful uh, um, continuation. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to ask Chidi if you have any, you want to make any comments on any of those questions? Mm. Um, I think maybe I'll start with the one about intersectionality, seeing as you also had an online question in relation to that. And I mean, there's no short answer to that, but the first um, step is actually being <coughs> conscious about what you're doing and being very deliberate, if you like, and intentional about ensuring that you are looking at these different areas when um, you're addressing issues around equality and gender equality in particular. So to give a concrete example, in some of the work that we're doing around um, pay equity or equal pay for work of equal value. Very often you have global statistics that are presented, whether it's a global figure for the gender pay gap or a national figure for the gender pay gap. And that doesn't take into account that, for example, if you are a black woman in the USA or Hispanic woman in the USA, the pay gap is much larger than it is um, compared to that overall gender pay gap. If you're a disabled woman in Canada or an indigenous woman in Canada, again, the gender pay gap tends to be much larger than, than the overall figure. So we are working with our affiliates to get that data. That's the first thing, is to ensure that whenever you're talking equality, you really need to look under the stone, if you like, and say, okay, what is it? What is it that we're actually looking at, talking about, and what information, what data are we gathering in order to be able to ensure that we're really getting to the, to the root of issues? 
Um, I can't really provide a, a straightforward answer to the disability question and how these two um, interact or intersect, being a woman and you know, social norms around gender and social norms around disability. But in some of the work and research that we've been doing with affiliates, for example, um, in Zimbabwe, where it was the Women's Committee of the National Affiliate that decided it wanted to do some real work around organizing disabled workers and challenging the norms that exist um, in society around disabled people generally and disabled workers in particular. I mean, the situation was quite horrific. You can't really, you know... Um, gloss over it. It was quite um, horrific, not only in the fact that employers, of course, ju just did not see disabled people as being potential employees, but the way that they were perceived by society as not really being full and productive members of society. So them having to do that um, groundwork, trying to change those norms, both by going into communities and actually working with disabled people in those communities and then working with employers to say, well, you need to put in place um, some measures that are going to assure that disabled workers have access to employment, also bringing well, a rather dis dysfunctional government, but trying to bring the government into that as well is part of the work that they've been doing now. And that's one example. There are other examples I could give you. Um, from around the world on that. So I think in order not to take up too much time, I'll stop there. Okay, Rachel, do you want to? Sure. Um. <coughs> yeah, no. oh, okay. yeah, sure. Um, I mean, also on the intersectionality issues, one of the clear findings from this kind of the growth studies was how little disaggregation there was. Some of the main lens was really around age and looking at particular issues for young married women as opposed to, to older people groups but not in uh, with detailing particularly issues for older women more just looking at, at that young marriage segment in particular and and the and the specific and and particularly extreme constraints that they faced um i don't think any of the studies mentioned anything to do with disability um i i wondered if Ian, you might like to comment on where the studies came from and you know why they did or didn't have certain lenses No, okay, no. Maybe I'll come back to it later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, any other comments? Um, well, I mean, around the changing nature of work, I think that, you know, how it looks on a global scale and how it plays out locally um, are often quite different. So in, in the studies, you know, there were certainly new opportunities coming up that from a global perspective about, you know, major shifts in the nature of work. They might not be reflected, but it was quite new in those given contexts. For example, that there was mining or that women were taking up, in some cases, more technical opportunities such as um, driving or carpentry, um, t typically on a small scale. Um, and, and then, of course, we've seen from other studies about kind of changing patterns of work and outsourcing of um, things like call centres and so on, that those create certain opportunities for women because they're seen as, as clean and safe sort of work to do at, at the aggregate level, though in, in any given context, people know whether actually that is safe work, whether they're going to be harassed on the way, whether... Um, 
uh, what their conditions will be like when they're working there. So I, I think that doesn't really answer your question very much, but it's mainly to say that I think in any given context, people were sort of assessing the, the pros and cons of any particular work opportunity. And if the financial benefits were enough, I think there was a shift that enabled women to go into those areas of work, but with a lot of caveats around it and with people not necessarily being fully subscribed to, to the shift, but thinking, well, that's what needs to happen at the moment because, because we need the money. Um, Marilyn, do you want to comment on one or two of those questions? We will take more questions if you want to wait. Hello, the reception is a little bit poor. So I didn't catch the question well. I didn't catch that. Okay, so I'm going Hello? to move. Uh, did you want to make a comment? No, I said there is, I had trouble with hearing. Oh, the reception was a bit poor. Okay, so I'm going to take another round of questions, and um, uh, if you if you can't um, hear them, um, then please do ask, and I'll I'll repeat one or two of them for you. Um, I see we've got right, some more you. questions on the floor, and then I'm going to ask a group a few of the online ones. A lot of questions. Um, any Eliazi graduate? Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Eni a graduate student at, uh, in economics at the LSE, and I was wondering uh, more in general about returns to education, in that there are studies that show that more and more young women are going into into higher education and in some fields outperforming their male counterparts. So, I was wondering if effects of that you think or expect are going to be shown in the near future or already have or without any changes in power structures, regardless of how well women do, we will not see a, a change in the disbalance, basically. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Rebecca Terzian from DFID. Um, I'd just be really interested in hearing any reflections on, or further reflections, I guess, on anything that we can be doing to quicken the pace of change. Um, on social norms and I suppose on the flip side anything we can be doing to minimize the backlash that we've talked about as well it's not there's no one easy answer of course but it would be interesting to hear any reflections on that thank you um, thanks uh, my name is Abigail Hunt I'm a research fellow here at ODI uh, my question is for Chidi um, I mean, I really love the investing in the care economy pieces. I think they're really um, interesting pieces of work. Um, but I'm really interested from your point of view if you think they've had a particular traction or policy resonance because they're essentially economic analysis and because they're making a very robust uh, financial case for investing in the care economy. Um, I'm really interested if you've found that that's had a particular resonance um, in the care economy debate. Hi, um, I'm Rebecca um, from Care International and I work in our women's economic empowerment team. Um, and my question was around, I think um, with gender norms it can feel like it's everyone's and no one's problem. So I was wondering if uh, in the research there were any findings on specifically on the role of business in changing gender norms. To put in two on, on, online questions around um, safety at work. One from Kelly, um, how do the speakers see the Me Too movement um, and the issue of safeguarding um, after years of gender equality advocacy and commitments to women's rights since 
Beijing. What is different that is making institutions, men, women, donors, take women's safety and well-being more seriously? And another similar one from Anya Glass at Plan International. Given all of the challenges GD laid out, what needs to be done between now and June 2019 to make sure that the new ILO standards on violence and harassment in the world of work are strong mechanisms to address the issue? So I think we've got six questions, which is quite a lot. Don't feel you have to answer all of them. So um, just pick out some, and I will come back to Marilyn um, and ask you one or two more specific questions at the end. Um, so, Chidi, can I start with you? Okay, thanks. Um, maybe I'll start with your question first, because it's quite easy <laughs> to do it, um, to, to address it. But the ILO has a wealth of information and material on this, and one of their latest reports, which is about the trends of women at work, shows that indeed the education gap between um, men and women is pretty much closed now. Um, and yet we're not seeing that, you know, um, transforming into the position of women in the labour market, because we still have... Um, what they call the unexplained, uh, unexplained gender gaps around discrimination, around social norms, etc. So unless we start to tackle those, then you know it's not about the disparity between women and men's participation, including around pay, is not about women's education levels. It is about addressing that discrimination and those um, those social gendered norms um, that you know follow us into into the workplace. Um, in terms of the impact of the care economy reports, I'm happy to say that, yes, it is actually having an impact. It's been a long, hard slog, but it's starting to have an impact, um, both in terms of policy making, um, but in terms of um, the advocacy work that the trade unions, our affiliates, are doing as well. A quick example would be in Ghana, where the trade union um, confederation is working with the government on the issue of investment in care as being central to social and economic development and to actually fulfilling the SDGs. I mean, we know we have these goals in the SDGs, especially Goal 5 on equality, which also includes tackling on paid care work. And we have um, Goal 8 on decent work, and they've made the link very well with all of these and are making the argument um, with the government that if you're actually serious about having a development policy, then you actually really have to put care at the centre of it because you're society, your people, etc., not really going to um, develop in the way that you might want them to if you don't um, do that. I wanted quickly, I think there was another question that was addressed, but I'm afraid I can't really remember what it was. But if I can quickly just mention the issue about the future of work, because there might be a link to that. As um, Emanuela from the ILO said, um, a lot of the future of work discussion revolves around technology and the fourth industrial revolution. But the care economy really is going to be the fastest growing sector and probably the most human resource after agriculture, the most human resource intensive sector. Um, so having a, a good focus on that and ensuring that the jobs that are created in that economy are gendered jobs, that they're jobs that tackle occupational segregation. So how the work, which is often perceived as women's work and is valued as women's work, actually having no real value other than an intrinsic one, is usually um, how care work is perceived needs to change. And that's also work that we're doing as um, trade unions, so global unions, um, which would include the ITUC and sectoral global federations, including, for instance, the um, International um, Transport Federation, Public Services International, Education International, these are all unions coming together to work 
on the care economy quite specifically and how it can help break down some of these really persistent um, social um, and gendered norms. And I know I didn't really tackle the question of age, but we are doing a lot of work on you know, gender and age. And it's, again, looking at the um, issue of equal pay for work of equal value and how that um, translates into um, women's ability to earn fairly throughout their life cycle. Um, but also what happens when you get to the end of that life cycle um, and how that discrimination impacts your ability to A, even have a pension in the first place, but B, have a pension that reflects the fact that you have contributed you know, to society at large, if not to a particular employer um, during that, um, that life cycle. So it's all <laughs> very interwoven and very complicated. But as I said earlier, if, you don't, if you're not really deliberate, about trying to address these issues, and they just don't get addressed at all. They just, you know, fall by the wayside. Great. Um, there were a couple of questions on violence and harassment oh, in the workplace. Yes. Um, what needs to be done between now and 2019 is actually a lot of discussions with employers and governments um, need to be had. Um, we still have a lot of resistance from many employers, um, but when you actually talk to employers who are working in the real economy, as we put it, many of them do realize that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. But we also have an ideological stand in this neoliberal global economies that we have, which is deregulation, deregulation, deregulation. So absolutely no new regulation, even if they can see that it, you know, it's going to be a benefit to them in terms of ensuring minimal reputational damage around these issues, in terms of avoiding court cases when employees are subjected to violence and harassment. But the ideological notion of deregulation and certainly no new regulation is very strong. So having these conversations, putting out examples from employers who are working on this and who are actually putting in place um, procedures, policies aimed at rooting out violence and harassment will be important. And calling governments to account, that's the most important thing because we have too many governments who came to the ILO this year and really were just not there to actually do what they needed to do to ensure that women in particular um, can go to work without having to be afraid of being subjected to violence um, and harassment. Um, so yeah, I think you know, making it as visible as possible, the fact that this is um, something that will be decided on next year, the fact that governments really have to get behind this, not letting them off the hook in terms of them being you know, supportive of the process and supporting the standards um, is crucial um, for us. Right, thank you. Um, I'm going to, um, Marilyn, I don't know if you can hear clearly, but I'm yeah. going to ask you one specific question. Um, so there was a question yeah. Yeah. about educational improvements and whether that is showing up um, in changes uh, that you're seeing on the ground. Are you able to comment on that? Um, I, maybe a little bit briefly. I think, um, uh, and the two things I wanted to comment about some previous questions. I think we are seeing um, girls, and I'll give my own example, we have, there's been a lot of, of um, you know, affirmative action initiatives, giving girls extra points to get into the university. Personally, in law school, there were more, there were more girls in the class than the boys, but in practice, when you look for the women, you kind of get lost where elsewhere. Some of us are in the development world, but there is a lot of progress. And when girls are given the opportunity to perform, they do tend to perform very strongly and competitively against their male counterparts. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, positive uh, 
results coming out of that. I want to tell you something that I've had. I've had comments in different fora when we have programs for girls, and then we see girls are performing voice, for example, in our business plan competition. I've had comments from people saying that we have left the boys behind. There's no programming for boys, and girls are becoming stronger and stronger. They're performing very, you know, they're performing very well. We're seeing lots of strong, you know, professional women. And I'll talk about, I've seen some stories about, you know, black women in, in, in the developing world, in the developed world, and they're, they're having struggles finding, you know, mates of the same, you know, who share the same values and who appreciate a woman of that caliber. And this is something that I've had before. And I think that maybe there is this need to also, as we support women to grow, there is some sort of need for some sort of intervention to, to help the men from the time that they are boys to appreciate a partner of that caliber and to appreciate why the efforts have been made towards women. There's a sort of some little bit of, not really animosity, but they're not very, they don't appreciate why girls are being given that effort, that, that, that attention and those extra, why they're being encouraged to participate more. I feel like there might be some room for some intervention, some sensitization for the men as they grow up and into their adulthood and as they enter the workforce for why you'd, why, what kind of relationship you have with a female boss and how that should not shock you very much and how you should consider treat her the same way you treat your male count, you know, your male boss. You know, there's, there's some small things around that I think we could maybe look into. Thank you very much. Um, Rachel. Comments. Yeah, I'll pick up a couple of questions. One was about the role of business. Um, only one of the studies addressed this, but it was very interesting. Um, <clears throat> the study of mining in East Africa looked at three countries and three different kinds of mines, and one of them was a lot more formal than the other two. And in the formal mine, um, there had been a notable problem of sexual harassment, and then the um, at the local level, the, the company received um, a directions from from their head office that they needed to stamp it out and so the the foreman um, was reported as saying well you know you've got to stop this if if not you're going to lose your jobs and it made a major change um essentially it stopped or it became much much more low level um and I mean, it really showed the power of people dealing with the threat of losing their jobs and um and a, a company taking committed action on it um, on the question of how can we speed up change, um, I think, as we've heard, this is an area where um, challenges are really entrenched. Like Caroline said at the beginning, it's a question of giving up power. It's perhaps much more challenging than some other areas of work. And I think because of that, there's there's no one magic bullet there. There's never a magic bullet, but there. Are, I think it's a real combination of a lot of different structural things to do with education, to do with widening opportunities um, and laws, um, proper implementation of laws, um, activism, demanding change, um, women's empowerment initiatives that give women and girls the confidence to speak out and demand change, work with men and boys to um, change masculinities, to um, promote more gender equitable ways of, of living. Um, you know, all of these can be reinforced through the media, um, and there are, you know, there are some good examples of programs that have done this and have been really innovative in changing norms and attitudes. Um, just to pick up one, one, um, because it's working with the young generation, um, school-based programs such as Tarankitoli in India, but there are many of these um, which work with. Um, 
clubs within schools and introduce a gender equality curriculum. Um, sometimes that's through formal lessons, but more, more often after school activities. Um, getting young people to rethink what they know about gender, what their expectations are for the future, um, boys what they're looking for in a wife, um, girls what they expect their, their future roles to be. And um, an evaluation of, of that specific program and many others have found that they've led to real shifts in ideas about what work is acceptable for women to do, what they expect to be doing themselves when they're older, what they expect their family relationships to be like when they're older. It would be really interesting to see whether those young people whose ideas have changed quite considerably are able to carry that through into adult life or if the change was in attitudes but didn't really translate any further. Thank you, Rachel. Um, we're close to the end of our session. If there's, I'll take one, maybe two questions and then ask the panel to sum up if there are any pressing questions. Oh, goodness, there's so many hands. I'm just going to take two of you. Um, so one over here and one over here. There's one at the back. I think we haven't had any men, so I think we should be yes, over to our <laughs> So representing men. <laughs> Okay, so my name's Peter, I work for Difford as well, on the land policy team. Um, and if we talk about economic empowerment, we can talk about income, and we can also talk about assets. Um, and of course, land policy, we're talking about assets a lot. Um, we've heard a lot about women's economic empowerment in terms of getting into the workforce, getting a source of income, but I was here, happy to hear someone, I can't remember who, touch a bit on assets and the fact that Across the world, often assets are just owned by men in the family. So if a woman becomes a widower, often she might not have ownership over the land, over the livestock, over in an urban environment, whatever that asset is. So I wondered if there's any reflections on how to change gender norms over asset ownership, as well as just over income. Hi. Thank you to all the speakers. Um, my name is Anam Parvez and I work at Oxfam. Um, I have a specific question for Rachel and we can also take this offline. Um, but I wondered whether you came across any instances of positive deviance um, in the GROW research. So cases of groups of people defying norms around care um, specifically and what made it possible um, or what was different about them, and whether we can learn something from those kinds of cases for sort of pathways to change. Great, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to ask the panelists to sum up. Um, there's one question here from Dimpy at Diffid, also asking a similar question which was asked earlier um, about how we can catalyze change without offending traditions, how we can speed things up a bit. Um, but maybe you can just incorporate that within your final comments. Um, Marilyn, I'm actually not going to ask you to speak because the connection really isn't bad enough, but you did mention, you did talk about assets and control over assets, and I wonder if you could perhaps just um, send us some, some written comments that we could put up online because the connection isn't really good enough for us to hear you, but I know you did talk about assets and control okay. over assets. Um, so I'm actually. Oh, for, I'll do that. Okay, thank you. That would be great, and we'll we'll put that up um, online um, in the next 24 hours. So I'm going to ask the two people we have in the room to make some concluding comments, uh, reflecting also on the last questions.
can I move to you first? Okay, thank you. Um, I don't know how to sum that all up in, in conclusion, but maybe um, I can point you all in the, in the direction of a publication that came out of a panel that was put together by the UN to drive women's economic empowerment, in fact, and in order to accelerate the achievement of the sustainable development goals, and particularly those um, that relate to gender equality. Um, but, not, but not only, because I think um, the work of that panel um, is really useful in identifying some of the levers that we can use to accelerate progress. It's certainly something that we use all the time in terms of our social dialogue advocacy um, and the work with our, with our affiliates. I also perhaps just want to wrap up by looking to the future. And I think somebody also asked about, well, where are we going from here? How do we react in the face of the backlash that um, is being experienced globally? And wanted to link that also to the issue of the future of work, which I didn't really touch on, because we're seeing it play into this. We're seeing a future where work is more precarious, where online platforms are playing a bigger role, so there's no employer at the end of it. It's just everybody is in work for themselves, everybody's an individual independent contractor, and all of that bring all that, that brings with them. Because if you look into the future and say, well, if none of us are actually playing into a pension pot because we're all independent contractors and all responsible for our own social protection, there's no collective and pot that we're paying into, then we have a really, you know, um, not a pleasant picture ahead of us, let's say. But in terms of gender norms, I mean, apart from, and I don't want to talk about digital gaps or digital divides, but we are seeing um, the fact that um, technology will play such a big part in the future of work, also um, having a role in this pushback against the role of women. So for instance, we're talking about violence and harassment and the solution suddenly is, well, women will be able to work from home. They don't need to go into a physical workplace, so we don't really need to worry about this. We talk about the care economy. Well, you know, they will be able to work from home again, so they'll be able to look after their children from, from home. So we don't need to worry about putting childcare in place or even elderly care because they can look after their dependent relatives at the same time as doing, you know, the work in front of their computer. So I think all of these things are things, again, that we need to be alive to and really need to be pushing back against as we're striving um, to achieve um, real gender equity and, uh, and equality. Rachel, um, I'm just going to respond on the positive deviance because I think the, you know, Judy's um, comments have really encapsulated anything else I could possibly say um, to sum up. So, um, the, the growth studies didn't set out to look at norms, and so they weren't probing things like positive deviance. But what did come up um, was where women had been able to take on new roles. Um, the key critical factor seemed to be a supportive family. And the family had become supportive either because they saw economic advantage in themselves for doing it, um, largely because of that. In some cases, there had been some sustained efforts to work with power holders, such as husbands, sometimes also mother-in-laws, people who were really objecting to the younger woman going out to do a particular kind of job and work and, you know, showing them that actually it wasn't... Lots of women were doing this, so it was partly the, the you know, showing the social norm that their daughter-in-law wasn't the only one to be doing this. Um, and partly showing the kinds of benefits of the family. Um, I think also um, some of the young women involved, it, it, it created an enormous strain on them. You know, they were positive deviants in, in the sense that they were blazing a trail, but they 
had they kind of overcompensated by having by bringing their parents-in-law presents when they whenever they went to market by showing a really exaggerated sense of duty within the household um you know to provide really good care and excellent cooking and everything else along with their other responsibilities so i think maybe that's just sort of concluding comment that you know the focus has been on on um, enhancing women's access to the, to the labour market and you know, the, the competing demands of care have come up a lot but you know, the reality in terms of, of their lives was very much of an enhancement of double burden um, as well as the empowering benefits that they certainly perceive by going to work. Great, thank you very much. Um, we've come to the end of, of our session. I think um, the presence in the room and online is testament to how important this issue is um, going forward and, and for the future of work. So thank you very much for all your contributions. Thank you, panel. Um, there'll be a video of this up uh, tomorrow, um, and we'll also incorporate any um, written comments that we get from any of the panelists um, for you to see there. Um, we do have a social outside the room if you want to stay and talk to the panelists and other guests, so please do join us. Thank you also to our sponsors, IDRC, and <laughs> others, um, DFID and others who funded the research that prompted, <laughs> sorry, uh, that prompted the, uh, the report that we did on norms. It's really great to bring together norms um, with economic um, issues around employment and assets and ownership of, of, um, of land and um, other assets. So very important progress, I think, in the discussion that we're having around change in this area. So thank you all very much, and thank you, panellists. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.